Welcome to the Sermon Podcast for Canton Church, a campus of Mount Perrin North. We exist to help people live a Christ-centered life, and we hope that you are encouraged by today's message. Well, some Sundays I come out here and I tell you a story to start the message, or I give you a statistic, or you know, something like that. I'm not going to do that today. I'm also not going to sing Rocky Top. I'm not going to do it. I've chosen not to. The sound guys have already told me if I start doing that, they'll mute my mic, so I'm not going to do that. I refuse to do that. I'm also not going to tell you that Corey's not going to beat me at bowling, even though that's never going to happen. Today, I have a confession to make. I suffer. I have a disorder. I didn't even know I had it until I got married. Um, it's called, it's, I don't know why you're laughing. It's not funny. I, it's called by a lot of different names. A lot of different things. That's why it's so confusing, and I didn't know I had it. I thought I was a pretty good person until I got married, and then I realized that I have this disorder. I have I-U-S-I-S-B-I-D-K-Y-W-I-S-F disease. I do. Don't laugh. It's serious. It's a really serious thing. I have it. I didn't know I had it, but I do, and I'm not ashamed to admit it today. And you say, well, Maybe I have that. Is it contagious? You might have it. I don't know. I may have given it to you. Some other person may have given it to you. But I, I have I-U-S-I-S-B-I-D-K-W-I-S-F disease. <laughs> I do. I have it. And I, I'm not ashamed to admit it today. And that means that I usually say I'm sorry, but I don't know what I'm sorry for. <laughs> I didn't even know I had that until I got married. I just thought it was okay to say you were sorry and people would receive that until my wife was like, but what are you sorry for? And I'm like, I don't know. That you're mad? She's like, that's not something to be sorry for. She's like, what are you sorry for? I was like, that I did something to make you mad? <laughs> She's like, that's not something to be sorry for. What are you sorry for? What did you do? And I'm like, that I don't know what I did to make you mad. <laughs> that's what I'm sorry for in this moment. I, I got an amen over here from somebody. Evidently, there are more than one of us in the room who have I-U-S-I-S-B-I-D-K-W-I-S-F. <laughs> Because saying sorry is really hard. It's really difficult. Sociologists would tell us that it is somewhere between the most hard thing we could say and the fifth hardest thing we could say as human beings. They've done study after study after study. One study that I looked at showed where they took 50 phrases that a human being might say, 50 different phrases of varying lengths and varying different emotions and things and they, lay, they laid those out on a piece of paper, and they had hundreds and hundreds, maybe even thousands of people come in and rank those phrases on how difficult they were to say or how often they said them or how much they wanted to say them. And I'm sorry, depending on when that was done, I'm sorry was somewhere between the hardest thing that humans have to say or the fifth most hard thing that somebody has to say because it's a really difficult thing to say. And here's the reason it's hard to say that. Because when you say, I'm sorry, you are admitting fault, you're admitting that you have done something that is wrong. And you're admitting that you are not perfect. And some of you just need that balloon burst today, right? But you're not perfect. You're, you're saying, I did something wrong. I'm sorry that I made a mistake. I'm sorry that I did something I'm not proud of. And so we admit that we are wrong. That's a difficult thing to say. The other reason that saying I'm sorry is difficult is because it also requires a level of vulnerability from you and for me, that's about the self-awareness that says, you know what, I, I'm not perfect. I did make a mistake. I, I am sorry that you didn't receive that the way that I intended or that I did something to try to deceive you or to keep something from you. And so there's a level of vulnerability there that we don't expose to many people in our lives. 
And so saying we're sorry when it's really well-intended, when it's actually honest to say, I'm sorry, I know I made a mistake. Not just I'm sorry I got caught, not just I'm sorry you're upset, even if I don't know why you're upset, I'm not, not that, but to say I am sorry because I know I did something and I am sorry that I did it. It's a really, really difficult thing to say. Corey was reminding me that our daughter, Kinley, who's five, she doesn't like to say she's sorry, even now. But when she was like two or three, one time she had done something and we said, hey, say you're sorry. She wouldn't do it. I'm not talking about for like a minute. Like she would not say she was sorry. We eventually sent her to her room, put her in her bed and said, you can get up as soon as you'll say you're sorry. She stayed there two hours. She would not admit that she was sorry. And, and truth be told, she's not the only one. In this room, some of us would sit there for weeks rather than admit that we're wrong and that we're sorry. And so today we're going to conclude this series that we've been in for the last couple of weeks called Let Us Pray. This series has really been about looking at some different stories in Scripture where we're trying to identify some prayers that we often might need to pray. We talked about God help me when we don't know what else to pray. We just said, God help me. We prayed about other people, said God save them. We talked about, God, thank you. And today, we're, we're going to talk about this idea of praying, I'm sorry. So if you've got a Bible, I want you to flip with me to the book of 2 Samuel. In 2 Samuel, we're going to read the story of a guy by the name of David. David is probably my favorite character in Scripture. I don't say character because he's not uh, a true person. I say character because we're going to read a, a ton of stuff here about his life and the characters that interact with him, the people that interact with him, the, the different places that he goes in his life. I love this story so much so that I wrote a book about it. Um, it's called You're Not As Good As They Say You Are, But You're Not That Bad Either. I wrote this a couple years ago. It's a fiction story in the first half of the book. And the second half of the book takes some kind of principles that we can all apply. If you love to read, I think you'll love it. If you hate to read, I think you'll love it. So if you want to buy it, you can pick them up today. They're $10, two for 15 um, But honestly, I, I really do love the story of David. And I believe that this story has something for everybody. Now, what we most often know about David is his highest high and his lowest low. His highest high, he defeats Goliath. And we're like, well, I've never killed a giant. I don't have anything in common with David. I think that you probably do. He also, in the lowest of low, which we're going to read about today, does some things that I believe you and I, even if we've never done this specific act, he has some patterns of behavior. He has some things that he does in justification that I think we can all relate to in some way or another. So I love this story, but I think it also reveals for all of us this I'm sorry type of heart eventually as it transpires. So 2 Samuel chapter 11 is where we're going to begin reading. We're going to begin reading in verse 1. We'll read a couple verses. We'll stop and we'll skip around a little bit through chapter 11 and chapter 12 through the remainder of our time. Let's begin reading in 2 Samuel chapter 11 verse 1. The scriptures will be up on the screen if you don't have a Bible today. In the spring at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out to the king's men, out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. And they destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. And from the roof, he saw a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. Now, let me just stop right there. Because I love the story of David, I have probably preached part of his story maybe 100, 200 times. Different portions of his story, not just this part, but from his calling to be king, from the Goliath story, this story, some of the ways that he interacted with people when he was on the run for his life, the way that Saul treated him, the way that when he became king, how he interacted with people, how he went to war, um, his family lineage, all those things. I love, there's so much richness, richness in this story. 
And almost every single time that I come to the story of David and I read this passage of Scripture, I would pause to say what I'm about to say to you right now. If we read in verse 1 that it's the springtime when kings go off to war, and David sent Joab with the king's men to fight the Ammonites, and David got up from his bed in Jerusalem, here's what I would say to all of us in this room. If you and I are trying to avoid decisions that eventually we're going to have to say sorry for, if you and I want to make sure that we don't make the kinds of mistakes that David makes in this moment or even those way worse than some of these, the chances of you getting into trouble go up exponentially when, we, when you are where you shouldn't be. The chances of you getting into trouble go up exponentially when you are where you shouldn't be. It's springtime and kings are out to war and David's men are out fighting the Ammonites and David is in Jerusalem in the palace, taking a nap. He's not where he's supposed to be. Eventually, he gets up from his nap, and he goes up, and he walks around on the top of the roof of his palace. I'm assuming, based on the reading of this story, this is not the first time he's been up there. But he is where he should not be, in a place he should not be, in a time he should not be there. And I know in my life, and you can probably say the same in yours, when I'm in a place I shouldn't be, in a time I shouldn't be, I'm telling you, trouble just finds me. And if you and I want to avoid the kinds of mistakes that David makes here and others, far worse even, we need to make sure that we are not in places we should not be. Maybe that sounds simplistic to you, but I believe the truth still comes out in the story. So David goes up. He sees Bathsheba. He calls Bathsheba to come to the palace. In the simplest form, David calls Bathsheba to the palace. They have a relationship. And eventually Bathsheba sends word to David that she's pregnant. David's like, uh-oh, well, so here's what we're going to do. We're going to fix this. Bathsheba's husband Uriah is out to battle because, remember, all of the king's men are fighting the Ammonites. So David says, okay, here's what I'll do. I'll call Uriah back from the field. I'll call him back, and I'll send him to spend time with his wife, and this will cover up my mistake. So he calls Uriah back from war. He brings Uriah in, and we don't know that much about Uriah. We understand from historical references that he was a, a good, upstanding man. He would have been well-respected. He would have had a little stature in the king's army and in the, king, uh, the king's palace there. So he brings Uriah back, and he had, hey, how, how are the men? How's the morale? How's the war going? How are things happening on the field? Sorry I'm not there. You know, I've got some things I've been working on here, but I'm sorry. How, how are things happening? Uriah says, yeah, things are great. We're, we're, we're doing everything you sold us to do. Joab's doing a great job leading the army. David says, that's great. Well, here's what I want you to do. Man, you deserve a break. Why don't you go over to your house, hang out with your wife, and we'll send you back out to the field the next day or two. That night, David goes to bed. He wakes up the next morning, and he finds that Uriah slept at his door, did not go home. He gets angry because he realizes that his cover-up is not going to happen. So he says, okay, uh, Uriah, listen, I sent you home. Why did you stay here? He's like, listen, I couldn't do this. The presence of God, the Ark of the Covenant. My brothers, my friends, they're all fighting. They're out at war. I could not go home and spend time with my wife. There's no way I could do that because that wouldn't be fair to my brothers. And David's like, man, that's, that's so honorable. I appreciate your integrity. I'm also a man of integrity, so I appreciate that. That's funnier than y'all gave it credit for right there. That's fine. You can just let that one pass on by. No big deal. So he says, well, here's what let's do. Let's just have a party. Like, you're here. I'm here. Let's just, let's just have a party. And David gets Uriah drunk. Gets him drunk, and he's like, hey, listen, this has been incredible. 
I've had a blast with you. Thanks so much for hanging out with me. Why don't you go home and hang out with your wife? I'm assuming Uriah says something like, that's a great idea, David. That's awesome. He goes to sleep. Next morning, David wakes up, realizes Uriah still sleeping beside his door. He's like, what in the world is going on? So here's what he does. He writes a letter. He sends this letter to Joab by way of Uriah. Uriah doesn't know it, but he's carrying his own death sentence in his hand as he goes back to the army. He goes to Joab, hands him the letter, and here's what the letter says. It says, take Uriah and put him where the fighting is the fiercest. And whenever it gets really, 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 really bad, pull all of the men back except Uriah and leave him there. So Joab reads the letter, and he does exactly as the king has asked him to do, and so he puts Uriah right where it's the worst. When it gets really, really bad, he pulls the men back, leaves Uriah. I don't know that this is what happened, but as I read this story, because I feel so familiar with these characters, I, I just think Uriah's a guy that wouldn't even go home because of his brothers fighting. I assume he's standing in the front lines. He's fighting on behalf of the men that are standing beside him, and he's fighting for his brothers and through no fault of his own, as he's fighting for the people that are standing beside him, he turns and looks and sees that they are no longer standing beside him. He probably, in the instant before he was killed, thought he did something wrong. He probably thought, did I miss the call? Did I miss the trumpet sound that called for me to come back and retreat a little bit? Did, I, did, I, did somebody say something and I wasn't paying attention? What, did I do something wrong? But through no fault of his own, and through the fault of David trying to cover up his sins and his mistakes, Uriah died that day. Because what you and I know to be true is what's played out in this story. David had to cover up his first mistake with a bigger mistake. It wasn't enough just to have this relationship with Bathsheba. That wasn't enough. Now he had a guy killed to cover up his mistake. Maybe you've never had a guy killed. Maybe not. I pray not. <laughs> but I know in my life, I'm sure it's true in yours, when I have made a mistake, it always takes something bigger to cover that mistake up. It, 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 it gets messy. I mean, it gets so messy. So Uriah dies through no fault of his own. And this is what it says in verse 26. When Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. And after the time of mourning was over, David had brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. David had plenty of chances to come clean. He had plenty of chances to confess. And when we read this story, I wish he would have. I wish he would have said, you know what, this is, I can't do this. I can't live this lie. There's no way. Bathsheba's not my wife. I should tell somebody Maybe even after that, he says, no, I can't have Uriah killed. I, I can't lose influence with Joab and the, the men that are out fighting. Like, I, I've got to come clean, and he needs to confess to somebody, but he chose not to do that. And so God sends the prophet Nathan to come and talk to King David. Nathan comes in, and, and Nathan's really smart because if Nathan would have walked into the room and he would have been, like, very confrontational, and he would have just, like, walked in and said, hey, I know what you did. You did this and you did this. David would have done what you and I do. And he would have said, no, 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 what are you talking about? I'm the king. How dare you accuse the king? I could have you killed. And no, no, no. Nathan walks in and he says, king, I want to tell you a story. 
He says, listen, there was a rich man and there was a poor man. And the rich man had tons of cattle. He had all the sheep he would want. He had tons of possession. He was rich. And the poor man, all he had was this one little lamb. It was like a child to him. It slept in his bed. It ate at his table. It drank from his cup. I mean, it was literally the only thing he had of value in his heart and in his life. Well, this traveler's going to come through one day, and he wants to stay with the rich man, so the rich man's going to receive him into his home. But instead of the rich man going to his own field and killing one of his possessions to serve at dinner that night, he goes to the poor man, takes the only lamb that that poor man has, and that's what he serves for dinner. David is so angry. He gets mad and he was like, how dare he? Who is this man? I will repay it four times. You tell me who did this and I will make sure that they pay for this. And Nathan looks at him and says, you're that man. That's, that's what you did. Nathan actually says, it's, it's one of the saddest verses in all of the scriptures. He says, God gave you everything, David. You're the king. The Bible tells us that he was handsome. He, he, he was just a great warrior, like God gave you everything. And this is what the Bible says. If that wasn't enough, he would have given you more. And yet you took Uriah's wife. I mean, that breaks my heart to think about this moment of, oh my goodness, what did I do? I'm the guy. I'm the rich guy, and I stole from the poor guy. I'm the guy that had everything, and I took from the man who didn't have as much as I had. He said, you are that man. And this is what it says in 2 Samuel 12, verse 13. After Nathan has confronted him, it says, you're the guy. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan replied, the Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die. Now, it took being confronted with his sin for David to confess, but that did not change God's response. Again, I wish that David would have come clean on his own. I wish that he would have said, hey, I did this thing. I need you to know about it. Nathan, would you come here? I need to tell you some stuff. I need to confess. I need to ask God's forgiveness and his mercy. He didn't do it. He had to be confronted by the prophet of God, and yet God's response was exactly what you would hope it to be. He said, your sins are forgiven. You're not going to die. This, this idea, you're not going to be punished. You personally are not going to be punished with the eternal consequences of what you've done. Your sins are forgiven. But the problem that we have here is that because David chose not to confess on his own, God had to use someone else to expose David's sin. Now, I want to be careful right here. I want to I step down into the heavy stuff this morning for just a few more minutes. And I'm not accusing anybody in the room of secret sin. I'm not trying to be kind of this antagonist this morning, but I just want to go to God's word here, and I just want to say like to all of us, whatever it is that you may be hiding, whatever it is that you may be holding on to, that you're sure nobody knows and nobody's ever going to know, so was David. And so are people around us, even if you want to come out of the narrative of the Bible the people in our culture who all of the sudden get exposed as a fraud, all of the sudden get their sins exposed, and now they're on the news, and now they lose their job, and now they lose their family, and now they lose their possessions. They never thought anybody would find out until somebody found out. And when I read this story of King David, and when I read the conversation that he had with the prophet Nathan, I realize that David's sin was exposed because he tried to hide it. 
it was exposed because he tried to hide it. Now, the Bible tells us that when we confess something to God, when we ask God for forgiveness and we say, God, I'm a sinner, here's what I've done, I have sinned against you, the Bible tells us that he takes that. And when I was in children's church, what they told me is he casts it away so that he can't remember it, right? He casts it into that sea of forgetfulness. But what the Bible really says is that it's as far as the east is from the west. It's constantly moving away from the remembrance of God. And so here's what I would say to all of us that may today or at any time in our lives be trying to hide something. If you and I try to hide it, God is always going to expose it. Always. But if you and I expose it through confession, God hides it. Think about that. If you and I expose it, if we say, God, here's what I've done. I've made a mistake. I need you to know this. I'm sorry. God actually takes it and hides it under the blood of Jesus that we just sang about, where it can never be brought against us again. But if you and I try to hide it and keep it in, thinking that nobody knows and nobody ever will know, I promise you it will become exposed at some point in your future. Every single time. You say, no, 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 you don't know. There's no way anybody could know. I promise you they will. I promise you they're going to find out. And somebody's going to walk up to you one day and seemingly tell you a very innocent story that ends with you being the guilty party. They're going to walk up and ask a very simple question that exposes the things that you are hiding in your heart and in your life. And so I would say to you today before we ever get to the end, don't try to hide it expose it, confess it, so that God can hide it under the blood of Jesus Christ. Because you're going to get found out, I promise, every single time. So David confesses, God forgives, as he always does. God forgives David because that's what God does. But he says, you're not going to die, but there is a punishment There is a consequence of what has happened here. The baby that was born to you in Bathsheba is going to die. It's going to get sick and it's going to die. And so when I read that, like I think, oh man, I hate that part of the story. I wish that didn't happen. I wish Uriah didn't have to die because of David's sin. I wish this baby didn't have to die because of the sin. Like I wish this didn't happen. And yet as a part of this story, this is one of the consequences of the sin, of the mistakes, of the poor decision of somebody else. Maybe you have been on the receiving end of Bearing the brunt of someone else's poor decisions. Bearing the penalty of somebody else's mistakes and their sin. It's unfair, it seems. Man, we don't like that part of the story, but for sure that's what happens sometimes. So God says, hey, there's no penalty for you on the eternal side. But there are some earthly consequences here. What it proves to us is that even though God forgives us, we still must pay those earthly consequences. As much as we don't like to, as much as we don't want to, There's still a price to be paid. So what happens is David, he says, okay, he gets up, he receives the mercy of God, the grace of God, he gets up, and he goes and he starts pleading and begging for God's mercy on this child. He doesn't shower, he doesn't bathe, he doesn't change clothes, he doesn't eat, he fasts, he prays. His, His servants, the people that work for him, they're trying to get him to eat, they're trying to get him to shower and take care of himself, he won't do it. He's praying for this child, praying for this child. Well, Eventually the child dies and the servants are scared to tell David because they're like, man, we can't tell him. If we tell him this, like look how he's acting while the child is still alive. If we tell him this baby has died, like he's going to lose it. He sees them talking in the doorway and he looks over and he says, has the child died? And they say, 
Yes, king. He gets up, he goes and takes a shower, he changes his clothes, and he sits down and he eats something. They say, king, we don't understand. You're going to have to explain this to us. Like while the baby was still alive, you fasted and mourned and prayed, but while the baby now is dead, you're up and like nothing's ever happened. He says, what do you want me to do? He said, while the baby was still alive, I prayed and asked God to save this child, thinking that God might do so. But now that the baby is dead, what can I do? The baby cannot come back to me. One day I will go to him, but he can't come back to me. So I've got to get up. I've got to live. There was an earthly consequence to the decisions and the actions that David did in his life. But God forgave him of the eternal punishment that was necessary for his sin. So he gets up and he goes... Bathsheba, who is now his wife, eventually becomes pregnant again and gives him a son, and they name him Solomon. And Solomon, according to history, was the wisest, richest king in the history of the nation of Israel, proving that even God can take those parts of our past that are broken and even come out of brokenness and even sin, perhaps, and redeem them and restore them for something great in our future. That our mistakes and our failures are not fatal that God desires to do something through that. And so here's how I want to end our time today. I, I want to I jump to the book of Psalms. If you got your Bibles, you were following along, jump with me to the Psalms real quick. This is in the Old Testament. It's, it's maybe 80% through the Old Testament, about 40, 50% through the entire uh, Bible. But uh, the Psalms are these collection of songs and poems and stories kind of collected there that are written by a number of different people, but a a ton of them are attributed to David. And he writes them, and they're very poetic. They're songs that are to be sung and celebrated. Sometimes they're about mourning or lamenting some things that are happening there. Psalm 51, we know to be, according to history and, and when it was collected, we understand Psalm 51 to be the psalm that David wrote immediately following Nathan's confrontation with David. When Nathan walks up and says, hey, you're that guy. You're the rich man who stole from the poor man. You're that guy. When David confesses to Nathan, he gets alone by himself. He writes this psalm. Now, we're not going to read the entire psalm, but we're going to read a few verses here. And I encourage you to really listen for this like raw emotion that comes out of him. If you've ever had to say you're sorry, if you've ever made a horrible mistake, you understand that feeling of understanding, man, you've disappointed people, you've made a horrible mistake, you can't believe you let yourself get into that situation, into that moment, to, to make that kind of, like, you can't listen for that kind of emotion here. And this is what it says. It says, for the director of music, this is a heading that's probably in your, in your Bible, a psalm of David, when the prophet Nathan came to him after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. And then this is what's collected here, beginning in verse 1. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, only you have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Skip to verse 10. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Verse 16, you do not delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart that you, God, will not despise. You hear the emotion, you hear the vulnerability, you hear that that sense that he is literally laying himself out before God 
and say, God, I am so sorry. Have mercy on me, oh God. Have compassion toward me, oh God. I don't know if you've ever been in that place, but I have. I've been in that place where I was just crying out to God, asking him for forgiveness, asking him to show mercy to me that I did not deserve. And when I listen to that, when I read that, I want us all to find that place where we know how to cry out, I'm sorry to God. Where we know how to call out to God for his mercy and his compassion towards us. Where we never get to that place where we just keep thinking it's hidden, it'll always stay hidden. But where we open up, admit fault in vulnerability to God so that he can forgive us heal us, and save us. And so to conclude today, I want to give you three thoughts about prayers of I'm sorry. Just three quick thoughts. Maybe you want to jot them down. Maybe you want to type them into your phone or something. But just three quick thoughts about I'm sorry types of prayers that I believe will help all of us. And the first one is this. Delaying only makes things worse. Delaying only makes things worse. I could say delaying always makes things worse. Delaying only makes things worse. You and I think, well, it's, I mean, it's going to be a hard conversation. I don't know how to tell God. I don't know how to tell these people. But I would say to you that delaying just makes it messier. It makes it harder. You, you think, well, I can't tell them. I can't, they won't understand. I promise you, the best thing for you to do is to open up and to say you're sorry and to, re- to realize and then to recognize and to acknowledge to everyone in your life and to God, I have done wrong. And come to, like, come to that on your terms. Like, don't, don't wait on God to expose your sin. Don't wait on God to expose it through other people. On your terms, come to God and say, God, I'm sorry I've done wrong. I admit it. Go to the people you've done wrong to and say, I am sorry I realize if I delay, it is going to make things worse. Do not delay. The second thing that I would say to you about these I'm sorry prayers is that forgiveness of sin does not equal freedom from consequences. We talked about this already just a few minutes ago, but forgiveness of sin does not equal freedom from consequences. The best way that I could explain this is to say, don't misunderstand the story. God forgives sin. I believe every single time. But let me just use an example. It is a very extreme example. I realize it may even bother some of you in the room, but this is the best way that I can describe it in human terms. If someone that we knew today, right after church, right down here on Riverstone, killed somebody, if the moment after they did that, they realized what they had done and they said, God, I am so sorry. Please forgive me. I've made a tragic mistake. I cannot believe I've done this. God, please forgive me of my sin. Let me help to make this right. I believe immediately God forgives them. I don't think he has reservations and I don't know if you mean it. Like I think if they're sincere, I think God immediately forgives them. But they're going to go to jail. They just are. Like there is no, no pun intended, get out of jail free card from the earthly consequences of the decisions that we make. God takes care of the eternal consequences. He says, I'll forgive your sins. I'll save you. I'll heal you. I'll show you grace and mercy in eternity. But there are some things on earth that you and I may have to pay for. It may mean that you lose the trust of someone you've done wrong. It may mean that you lose a relationship. It may mean that you lose some money. You lose some possessions. You lose some status. You lose your job. You lose some time. 
I don't know what it is, but I promise you, God will forgive you immediately. That's why you don't need to delay. But you may have to pay a price here on earth for the decisions that you've made. And the third thing is this. True I'm sorry prayers produce change. True I'm sorry prayers produce change. Did you hear what David said at the end of Psalm 51 that we read there in verse 17? He said, listen, if you're looking for a sacrifice, I know you're not looking for a sacrifice. Like, I know that's not as important as me being the sacrifice, right? He said, my sacrifice is a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. This idea of, of a heart that's broken before you that is repentant of what I've done. There's a change in me. Create a clean spirit in me. Create a clean heart in me. Do something different. This is not about saying I'm sorry because I don't know what I'm sorry for because I'm sorry I got caught or I'm sorry you're upset or I'm sorry you're mad. Or... No, no, no. This is about that repentant attitude. Repentance, if you're not familiar with this, is this idea that comes out of, out of Christianity. We're repenting before God. We're, we're asking God to forgive us, but we are also saying, God, if this is the direction I'm headed, this is the decisions that I've been making, I repent. I turn away from these decisions. I turn away from these actions and behaviors, and I turn towards you. I turn towards decisions that reflect you and decisions that honor you and thoughts that honor you. And so I repent. I turn away from what I have been and what I have been doing, and I turn towards you in a life that honors and reflects you. I'm going to be a sacrifice. I may have to turn away from some relationships and some friendships I've had for a long time, but I repent. I turn away because those are bad influences that I can't say no to. I give up some things in my life. I give up some freedoms I do have to find ultimate freedom in you. And so I repent from this thing over here, these things, these decisions, and I come to you a broken and a contrite heart. I am the sacrifice. It produces change in me. I'm not just saying I'm sorry that I got caught. I'm not just saying that I'm sorry that, you know, you're upset, God. I'm not just saying this so that I can kind of, you know, get out of hell free card or whatever. Like, I'm not just saying that. I'm saying, God, I, I literally repent, turn away from what I have been doing to find you. And every single time that we do, before we even open our mouths and we make that first quarter turn towards God, he receives us with open arms. Have mercy on me, O oh God. Have compassion towards me. What did Nathan say? God receives your confession. He forgives you of all your sins. I want to be careful right here and just say to you as we conclude this morning, we're going to pray. Again, hear my heart, please. Give me the benefit of the doubt as much as humanly possible today. I'm not standing up here taking the place of Nathan and rebuking you for some secret sin that I don't know about. I'm saying for all of us, today or in our future, we need to know how to say I'm sorry prayers because we're gonna make mistakes. We're gonna mess up. And the worst thing that you can do is to hide them. The best thing that you can do is expose them. Confess them to God. Confess them to the people that you've hurt. And allow God, trust God to bring healing and to grant forgiveness. Do the hard work. Be the sacrifice. Regain their trust. Regain the things that you've lost that are worth regaining. Seek the mercy of God and those you've harmed. And just say, I'm sorry.
Close your eyes if you would. Bow your heads if you would. Let's pray together today. And if there's something that you need to tell God, start right now. Do not delay. It only makes things worse. And let's trust God today in prayer. God, I thank you so much that you hear us when we pray. I thank you, God, that we can pour out our hearts, that we can pour out those things inside of us that are messy. They don't look nice. They don't smell nice. They're the parts of us we wish didn't exist. But God, I thank you that when we call those things out to you, we confess those things to you, that you hear us. And so God, today, as people in this room are taking the courageous step to confess some things to you, God, would you hear them and would you forgive them? For those of us that that may not connect to us this morning, maybe there's not something that we need to confess. God, help us to remember the truths of this story so that we can be reminded in moments where we we fall. Sure, we make mistakes. Let us trust you in confession. Give to you our vulnerable selves, our real selves, as authentically as we can. Because God, you're not asking us to fix it on our own. That just makes it worse. You already fixed it. You already paid the price. You loved us enough that before we even messed up, you atoned for us. You paid the price, the ultimate price for our salvation. And so God, today we thank you for forgiveness. We thank you for mercy. We thank you for grace. And we thank you, God, that we can celebrate that because we know you give it to us freely every single time we truly repent and confess to you. God, help us not to to hide those things where you have to come back and expose them, but God, let us expose those things to you so that you can hide them under the blood of Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Thanks again for listening today. If you would like more information about today's message or about our church, we invite you to visit us at cantonchurch.com or facebook.com slash cantonchurchga.com.